Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future Space. I'm your host, Daniel Fox. Our guest today is Sita Santi. Sita is a partner and associate director, aerospace and defense at the Boston Consulting Group. She's the former head of human space flight sales at SpaceX, a former senior U.S. diplomat in countries such as Libya and Syria, and a single mother to two amazing teenagers. Sita, welcome to the future of space. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me to be part of this dialogue with you today. Well, I'm looking forward to learn more about your journey. Um, but before we go there, I always start my uh, interviews with two really important questions. Could you share with us three words that for you capture the essence of space? Three individual words that capture the essence of space. Um, the first is creativity. I think space has demanded creativity, not only to imagine what it takes to get there, but it will continue to demand creativity of anybody involved in the space domain to be able to help each other. I mean, creativity is the basis for a lot of imagination of the technology, but also the artistry that can emerge. Um, the second word that comes to mind is boundless, both because of the obvious nature of space appearing to be and largely being a boundless environment, but also, and this relates to the creativity piece, if space is boundless, then what we can do there could and potentially should also be similarly boundless. It should only be bound by time, potentially money, right? If there's a financial constraint or resource, um, but it should not be bound by the human imagination. So boundless is the second word. Um, the third word that comes to mind is humbling. What I often hear expressed by anyone who's actually been to space and, you know, talking about this two seconds ago, the overview effect is the nature that as one human being, when you're actually in a space environment, or even if you're just imagining it, it should be approached with humility in a way. It should be approached as a potentially boundless and yet tender natural resource. Because if you deliver humility into that environment, then you can actually perhaps have a, a lot more respect for how we can utilize it in a way that's equitable sustainable and really benefits as many people in humanity as possible instead of just benefiting the few. So those are the three words that off the cuff come to my mind. Creativity, boundless and humility. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's, it's it, a package that comes with always pushing those boundaries, whether, you know, if we go back into the 1500s, you know, setting out onto the sea on these long trips. Yes. You, you've mastered, the capacity to travel on the oceans, but you're still riding on the back of a giant that can do whatever it wants to do with you. And the sea is untamable. It's, it's, you cannot tame the ocean and this force of nature that is bigger than you. So while you're capable of extending and going beyond the horizon, there's a humility and understanding that the, the, these forces are not meant to be controlled, but rather kind of work with and use for your own advantage. And space is gonna be the same thing. As we go to space, now we have this open to this world that 
for us, no, no boundaries, but at the same time, we're just this tiny little speck and where we can be pushed out in this, you know, in this single solar wind or whatever it is. But then going back and going to space is going to continue this, this uh, reality. I think we're going to learn more, even more about ourselves. And like, well, <clears throat> when we went to the moon, we learned more about the planet looking back. And when we're going to go up there, it's going to be more about learning about ourselves, what we can and can do, and remember a little place in that big, big, um, big uh, world, right? No, absolutely. And it's it's funny. I remember we would have conversations about whether or not you actually had to be a superhero to travel to space. And I'm not saying conversations with my kids, although I've had those conversations too. I mean, when I was at SpaceX, when I was at Sierra Nevada, and we were working on the Dream Chaser platform. Even in previous roles, when I was in government, you assume that in order to go to space, the historical nature of the astronaut program has always been, you would have to be, we were talking about this a second ago, sound of body and mind, aware of the risks, but there's a superhuman or almost superhuman element to being a member of the community of human space faring individuals. I feel like now that space is becoming more accessible, and I say becoming because I really think we've only started that journey. It hasn't actually happened yet. But now that it's becoming more accessible, it's enabling participation in space activity, right? That can be space flight itself, but there's so much other space activity than human space flight. For communities of individuals who are not superhuman, maybe they're disabled. Maybe they're artists and they're not scientists, but even, even space can and should be one of these boundless domains of creativity where you can be humble and potentially learn more exactly to your point, Daniel, about ourselves and, and why it is that we as a species not only continue to create technology that enables exploration, but why explore at all? I think um, balancing this sort of human desire for exploration against, I mean, think, talk about humility towards natural, natural phenomena in the context of COVID. I mean, what an interesting chapter for the space domain itself, both for companies that wanted to continue to grow, agencies, governments that continue to wanted to grow their footprint on sort of the history of spacefaring, but also for those who just day-to-day -day individuals who maybe were excited about the idea of space, maybe they were a member of the space economy, so-called, but then all of a sudden they were constrained by a really strong natural phenomenon. I mean, I was on way too many aircraft during the days of COVID and I just know that was just commercial aviation. So how do we balance in a way or manage the tension between that desire for exploration, which requires very hard work, technology, creativity, et cetera, against the humility of the natural of the natural forces that are at play. These are the kinds of tensions that we think about, I think. When you were talking the, the metaphor, the parallel that was going through my mind was, you know, I just came back, I spent last year in the up in the Arctic, down south in Antarctica on board uh, Seaborn's new expedition ship venture. And talk about expanding these the human experience the, the exploration to a diverse group of individuals yes okay it's still it's not not affordable to everyone more and more but here we were in a exploration ship a new exploration ship with 
the bells and whistles and the new technology that makes it available, uh, possible for people who never thought could be um, reachable. I mean, we had we had someone who was 98 years old that was walking on a cane. We had someone on a wheelchair going, you know, disembarking on a zodiac in Antarctica and experiencing for the first time, and always reminding myself that these places were only accessible by the hardcore explorers who were willing to brave through the elements and die in the process. And now, you know, now we can do it in a way that is fairly decent. Even the Drake Passage, you know, now we can, I mean, it's still a force to reckon with, but the, the reality that technology has now allowed us to expand and open these experiences in space, space, you know, yes, we talk about a lot how the money, you know, how this, it's expensive right now, but that is the curve of any single new experiences in technology, whether it was sailing, flying, and now space. I mean, you must be, as, as someone who's been in that world, you must be excited at looking ahead and what's coming up. Are you? I'm pretty sure you are. <laughs> oh my god yeah <laughs> i'm like crazy excited um if anything my kids are like you need to calm down mom <laughs> but you know what there's something you said that that brought up an immediate reaction for me which is and and, and ties to something that i often talk about the buzzword or the catchphrase of democratization of space almost as though space is becoming or has already become more accessible to someone who is elderly, disabled, maybe suffers from diabetes, has cancer, etc. Yes, we have seen tremendous milestones on the trajectory in that direction, but we're not 100% there yet. And a big reason behind this is you still need to have the financial means. And so that's sort of one aspect of exploration, or I would say the benefits of human exploration, particularly in the context of the space domain, that I'm still very cognizant of and try to add value in that in that context. And I'll be very specific. I'll give you an example. So in Oslo at the end of May, there's going to be a conference sponsored by the Norwegian Space Agency called GLOC or GLOC. Basically, it's the global, um, global space communities coming together to discuss technologies and ways to mitigate the effects of climate change, specifically. One of the topics that I and a group of other great thought partners put together um, for a potential panel, which was accepted, which I'm so honored about, is actually unlocking the benefits of space-based technology to mitigate climate change's impact for underrepresented communities, for under, you know, for underprivileged groups, for economies that are underdeveloped. And one example that came up was the tremendous floods in Pakistan that took scores and scores and scores of lives not that long ago. The benefit of Earth observation, right? Those capabilities that have been in use for quite a number of years now and are developed and are becoming more and more refined in terms of the technology over time. That Earth observation capability, which depends on space technology, can take pictures of the Earth on which you can add an artificial intelligence component to predict and or analyze and or simulate what if this kind of flood pattern existed in this plot of land at this snapshot of time. And in that simulated environment, what kind of natural disaster recovery needs to take place for a community like 
the community in Pakistan that suffered such heartbreaking loss. Because what is the purpose of great human exploration, of great engineering, of incredible groundbreaking technology such as Earth observation out of low Earth orbit if we can't save lives here on Earth? What's the purpose of it, right? And so I'm excited to be continuing to have that part of the dialogue. And and yes, you can tell I get very, very excited about these topics all the time. <laughs> we, I think we've been like kind of circling around the answer to the second question that I, that I always start with. Um, so we can kind of go a little bit deeper there. But what is, there's a, you just mentioned that a, a technology application of going to space. There's a science story of going to space. But more precisely, what do you think underneath all of this is the human story of going to space? I think we go to new places as human beings exactly to the point you made at the outset, to learn more about ourselves. But notice I said ourselves, not myself, right? It can be an incredibly individualistic experience. I'm surmising from those who have, whom I've spoken to who participated in human spaceflight specifically. But if we're going to be more equitable about the benefits of that journey, then we learn about ourselves. Is there something that we can learn that we can share with other communities in humanity by going to space? The answer is fundamentally yes. And we've seen incredible examples of that already. I think, you know, I think about like the 3000 experiments that have been uh, conducted on the ISS in the last, what, 23 years or so, impacting biotech, pharma, food processing, growing seeds. The nature of those experiments are, it's not just a fun science project in space. And yes, oh, by the way, it's okay if it is just a fun science project in space. But we're going there in a, as part of the human journey to learn about how cancer cells mutate in a zero gravity environment. So maybe we can better predict how certain cancer cells are going to mutate in a gravitational environment. And again, try to predict in a way to prevent bad outcomes. Because at the end of the day, nobody wants a bad outcome. If there is a way to harness the benefits of space, scientific research, exploration, earth observation, connectivity, precision navigation and timing, right? Like all these capabilities in order to save lives, then of course it's worth it. And of course we're seeing those meaningful applications already take place based on just the scientific experiments on the ISS alone. Um, and that's what's super exciting to me. There's another example that I get very excited about, which is on recycling. There has been, you know, through 3D printing in on the ISS, there's been this movement towards harnessing that technology where you put in recycled plastic, or you put in plastic waste and see if you can generate filament for 3D printing new artifacts. Because of course, resources are so limited up in space, right? Why can't we do that back here on Earth? That's part of the journey. The incentives to be efficient in space are a thousand times more important than here on Earth. In fact, the incentive here on Earth actually work against us because it's more abundant and it's easier to be not efficient. Um, and then we have to get to that um, place of stress to realize, oh no, we're not we're not in a you know in a boundless environment. But going to space, we start from a place. This is not. We cannot just act as if everything is 
is is bountiful, we have to be extremely careful. You cannot just open the door and just throw your trash out, you know, the side gates and float in space because these that transform carbon material, these atoms are actually worth so so much. You need to figure out how to recycle and reuse them more and more. But I think for me, and it was even more like confirmed yesterday when I was watching this documentary, because now we're going <clears throat> we're going deep sea mining. We have these nodules that are down, that are absolutely filled with all these different minerals that we need for this vision of a battery economy. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy because we're again in, in, in exploring places where there's going to be a lot of impact. But the sooner that we can harvest these minerals up in space in areas that are barren or have less impact, you know, environmentally, the better is going to be for the earth. This, this, this future, this electric future is going to be as damageable for the earth as the, the fossil fuel, because the problem is not about, you know, the, how much um, resources that we have. It's always the extraction that is the problem. And if we have to choose between an asteroid who is, you know, floating in space or the Amazon or the deep sea, of course, we're going to go over there. So the sooner we can extract from space, the better it's going to be for the earth. I mean, is that something that you agree with and, and you foresee? Fully agree with it and definitely not only foresee, but you're seeing really exciting new space companies like iSpace out of Japan coming up with the technology to mine lunar regolith and turn it into something meaningful, right? It is the extraction of precious resources from every new domain that we as a race can uncover, can discover, um, but to do so in a way that is symbiotic with the environment, that's gonna be the key. Because at the end of the day, it's exceptionally meaningful to see the kind of technological advancements that some of the greatest aerospace engineers, many of whom are incredibly young and all from, from all over the world, have been able to stitch together that enables this kind of lunar regolith mining as one example. Um, there's also the, I think I'm really inspired by the weather data that's been collected by the Amal or Hope Rover on Mars uh, out of the United Arab Emirates. So the nature of spacefaring technology is becoming increasingly global. But what's the benefit of the collection of that data? What's the benefit of learning how to mine lunar regolith? At the end of the day, I think the benefit is identifying how we can continue to sustain our ecosystem as it grows, because clearly that ecosystem is growing into orbit, into deep space. That's in fact a stated objective for all of the world's spacefaring nations. But we want to do it in a way that is, to your point, respectful of the environment that we're in. And it would be ideal if we could do that without the incentives of stress and loss, the way that you articulated it. It would be ideal if we didn't have to wait for a major Kessler effect to actually incentivize us to stop putting up more space junk or putting up artifacts in space that result in debris and collision. Um, that would be the ideal. And so I think I'm, I'm very inspired and moved by how both civil space agencies, government engagers who are financing a lot of the development of space technology and exploration, as well as the companies who are developing the technology are taking a much more mindful look towards what is the environmental impact of our activity? 
How do we mitigate the probability of you know, collision of two artifacts in orbit? How do we mitigate the environmental impact of what it is that we're doing? Or how do we at least monitor it more effectively? Because we have to be able to learn from some of the advancements and understandings of what we've done to the climate here on Earth as we explore new fields. Now, the, I mean, we could, we could get, carry on into this, this direction, but I, I want to learn a little bit about, I mean, I was reading your profile and your background and you were in the government, you were diplomat, government uh, world, and then you ended up with SpaceX, Sierra Nevada, SpaceX um, uh, sales of space flight and FA now and Boston. Was space kind of more of an accident where you found yourself kind of like thrown in or was it kind of that North Star that kept leading you and now you are where you always wanted to be? I'm definitely, oh my gosh, I, I could not have dreamed that I would be where I am right now. I feel really excited and, and again, humbled by that. Um, but if I'm being perfectly honest, it wasn't accidental so much as one of the benefits of being a diplomat. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. When you are representing your nation, and in this case, the United States, particularly if you don't look like a lot of Americans from a global perspective, they don't look at me and think, oh, that must be a senior representative of the people of America. No, that's that's not the perception, um, especially in hostile environments, especially in actual war zones, um, particularly where the objective is to actually establish trust in a landscape where you don't really know a lot, right? Think about the analogous benefits or how that could translate into space. It requires creativity. It requires imagination. It also requires, and, and I always come back to this, a fundamental understanding of human values and being able to harness those human values among a number of people towards a shared objective. The fact that the shared objective in the space domain happens to be some combination of space exploration, human spaceflight, furthering industrial growth, economic activity that benefits as many stakeholders as possible is a happy, slight coincidence perhaps. But I think when you're representing your nation, you have to approach it with as broad and inclusive perspective as possible, because you're representing, I mean, America is not a monolith. I think the events of the last decade have proven that um, neither culturally, nor politically, nor economically, nor technologically. And so when you're trying to represent such a diverse set of stakeholders to an environment and another group of individuals and establish meaningful methods of communication and figure out how interests converge, and communicate that with alacrity, um, that has a lot of meaning in an environment where none of the rules have been set. And that's what I mean by space. If there are no rules, then you want to approach it with this perspective of, well, where do we actually need to have some boundaries? Because it is boundless at the end of the day. And how do we create those boundaries in a way that actually is not through the lens of zero sum. It's not purely through the lens of competition. It's not purely through the lens of, I wanna get there first. I wanna maximize my margin. 
I want to make sure that I capture all of the market share and that I crowd out the potential for any other technologist to enter this domain. It's not through that lens at all. That's where I think it's actually not coincidental that I ended up here. It's um, it's really, I think, the, the an older philosophy you know, of understanding that life is a balance between two tensions, you know, whether it's the yin and the yang, or the Japanese have the yeto no uri, the, the, it's this perfect, it's the perfect sword grip. So it's not too stiff so that you cannot move and it's not too soft that you cannot, you know, stop a, a hard blow. Life, you know, tension, you need to have enough tension so that you can stand up, but not too much so that you're too, too stiff and you, and you fall. And I think the markets, the, the, the wild west where, you know, oh, it's free fall, it doesn't, there's no longevity to that. It kind of eats itself in the process. You need a combination of legislations or certain boundaries, and then you have to let people play in the middle. And I think, you know, we talk about China and the US and some of the comparisons in today's markets. And China, what what we hear a lot is that there's a lack of creativity they, they, because they don't allow the playing in the middle. Yes, you need, again, those boundaries and going to space, we're going to need the, the, the human mind to, to go and, and want to play. But at the same time, we need those rules. You mentioned something and being, being, being a diplomat, I, I want us to talk a little bit more about that. You have being a diplomat coming to the table, representing a country of abundance and different, different realities and, and finding yourself in these places that have different realities. Um, you have, first of all, to start from a place of recognition of differences. The, the, yes, we all have the same values. We want to put food on the table. We want to be recognized. We want to give our children a future. But then after that, there's a lot of differences. I hear a lot, you know, when we go to space, the, the analogy, you look back, it's like, oh, we come from one single planet. You know, there are no borders. But the reality is that there are endless borders. There is like 8 billion personal stories on this planet. And we have to recognize those differences if we can move beyond and above them. I mean, is would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I think that's an incredibly articulate way of conveying that in order to effectively represent diverse perspectives, you have to acknowledge that they exist. Right. Yes, maybe our mission is we want to go to Mars. <laughs> we know that mission is, is, is dominant in the space domain. Maybe our mission is we want to better discover how to 3D print things in orbit so that we can 3D print and more appropriately preserve natural resources here on Earth. The mission profile can be different. How we get there, there's so many, like you said, potentially 8 billion paths to get to that outcome. And you can only benefit from hearing at least at least hearing and at most integrating each one of those 8 billion perspectives in what the ideal journey can be. And yes, it can be highly inefficient to have to listen to 8 billion people. So at the end of the day, you do need to try to synthesize some kind of fabric. Synthesizing that fabric is not just a soft skill, which is an expression which troubles me because there's nothing soft about it. It's exceptionally challenging. But if you think about the engineering that's required to 
develop a launch vehicle that is reusable or the engineering that's required to identify the number of artifacts in low Earth orbit into a systemized space situational awareness database. Right? These are actual engineering demands that are out in the industrial economy today. The engineering itself, there's a few different ways that you can solve each of those problems. And once you add to that, okay, maybe there's different scientific and mathematical ways to solve those problems. What are the ethical ways to leverage the answers, right? How do we ensure that we offer these services so that whoever is at stake or whosever interests are at stake can be met? Yes, of course, I want my interests to be met before anybody else, whether my interests are those of the United States vital national interest or my interests are the, you know, quarterly report of a publicly traded aerospace and defense company. I'm always going to prioritize those. So it is, in fact, attention to manage. Um, there's a there's an expression in Sanskrit, which is similar to what you were identifying earlier, ativrushti anavrushti. And that expression suggests it's either everything, everywhere, all at once, one of my favorite movies, or nothing. And in principle, there has to be some balance between the two of how do we integrate as many diverse methods to both solve the science and technology and engineering and math problem and drive a good financial outcome for as many as possible, as reasonable, and ultimately expound on the benefit and the impact for as many communities who may or may not even know that they can benefit from this. Like in a perfect world, we will be 3D printing human organs in space. We will be bringing them back to earth but rather than them all being delivered to the most developed economies, they will actually be distributed in an equitable fashion to countries where the mortality rates are the highest, right? That's, that's a positive outcome. That's a diverse outcome that I think really can showcase the potential benefits of space exploration for all of mankind. It's, now, I don't want to dismiss all the, the, problems that our society face. I mean, we do, you know, we, we have to, to fix a lot of things, but I, I do believe that we don't give our species enough credit. I think that we're, we've drinking the Kool-Aid of Hollywood thinking that, you know, tragedies and disasters happen and we're powerless to it. And the human species is just, you know, the, the conservation and environmentalists have created this narrative that we're a cancer on the planet. We're awful. And we're, you know, if you're if we're taken out of the equation, life would just be a paradise and, and so forth. But we are an active participant. In fact, I mean, first of all, we're a product of nature. We, we wouldn't exist if nature would have not want, you know, wanted us to, to appear. But we are always playing this dance with our environment. And when there are problems that happens or arise, we figure it out how to solve them. And I think this is what the human species is expert at. It's moving forward. Yes, we break things and we, we push the boundaries, but then we're constantly trying to reassess how we can go and ex go beyond. This is one of the, I mean, this is a reason why we're 8 billion on the planet. It's not because we're bad species. It's because we're expert as figuring at, at figuring out how to move forward. And, I mean, correctly so, we have AI coming. There's a lot of dangerous technologies that are 
plumbing and space is going to be, you know, opening a, a Pandora's box with new, new uh, challenges. But at the same time, we have this awareness of wanting to move forward by doing the right thing. And I not, I'm not, I'm definitely not a gloom and doom person thinking of the future because I'm surrounded by people that wake up every single morning wanting to do the right thing and wanting to find solutions and wanting to make the world a better place. Is that a sentiment that you share also? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's, it's funny, even as you were talking about AI, I, I, you know, I'm very, very curious to see what happens with chat GPT and how many jobs it replaces and how many people and how many generations or how many segments of the industrial economy are impacted by artificial intelligence. And yet it's a tool, right? Any kind of technology, anything that's made, whether it's a launch vehicle, let's not treat it as God. It is a tool towards solving additional problems. And it's a tool ultimately that was made by us or some segment of us as a, as a species, to your point. And I think about, you know, the, the benefits of the industrial economy is, largely are the ability to invest in the development of technologies whose applications we don't even have defined yet, right? We don't really know how we're going to most successfully or maybe most ethically leverage something like ChatGPT. We're kind of playing around with it. I mean, kids are playing around with it in school, you know? But at some point, you let the technology grow, you see the power of what it can do, you extract economic benefit, you can add to and stimulate and really drive shareholder value for a lot of companies and or the industrial economies, which create jobs, which drive education, et cetera. So there is a positive impact from a macroeconomic standpoint. And then there the pendulum will swing and there will need to be the establishment of some norms because at the end of the day, there are tools that have to service us and as many of us as possible if you want to prevent negative outcomes. And so that pendulum will swing and there will need to be rules, a rules-based order that's established for chat GPT, the same way that rules are going to be established for space situational awareness, for launches, for the environmental impact of launches, for the safe methods of transportation of humans to space, because many of us want to opt into that experience if there's some stage where we can afford it. But even in the beginning of commercial aviation, it was not affordable for most people. It was terrifying for a lot of people. And at the end of the day, it actually is a major driver in not just the growth of economies, but what I call the free flow of information and ideas, right? So in a way, space transportation and space exploration is going to be another lever, but it's going to be a tool. And there will need to be some norms established around it so that it becomes less expensive. It becomes more equitably available, like actually equitably available, and it's used responsibly, right? Like we want all these tools to be used responsibly, maybe for some play, maybe for some art, maybe for sure for industrial development, um, maybe for scientific research, but those applications have to be done in a responsible and ethical way. And I think those are the kind of questions that really the space community is grappling with today. So how did you how did you go from the government to Sierra Nevada? Like how, like what was that? I mean, after Sierra Nevada, the SpaceX and where you are right now, there can be, you know, we can see the trajectory. 
But really, the, the, that leap from the governmental to Sierra Nevada, the space, what was the, the opportunity that presented to, uh, itself to you? No, well said. And I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't express thanks to all of the, frankly, the inspiring leaders in the aerospace industry who actually took a chance on me. Because unlike a lot of folks in the space industry, I'm not an engineer, although I'm pretty good at math and science. Um, but I didn't go down that path academically. I went into economics. And as you know, you know, I had a career as a senior diplomat. And one of the interesting factors or natures of the work that I did in the countries where I worked as a diplomat is that at the end of the day, aerospace and defense industry is a tool of foreign policy, right? And so it was one of the many tools that I had the opportunity to learn about, learn about the United States interest in, the United States contribution thereto, and understand how the transfer of key technologies in the aerospace and defense domain can shape positive outcomes that benefit mutual interest between the United States and one of the many nations where I had the honor to serve and represent my nation. The extension from that, though, is, well, okay, I, I can understand and I can execute and lead negotiations in bilateral defense consultations for aerospace technology, but many of these are dual use. Sometimes they have an application in a national security setting, but oftentimes they have an application in a civil or commercial setting as well, right? And that is really what bridged the gap. Um, I had the honor of, you know, an executive role at Raytheon, the executive role at Sierra Nevada, and the executive role at SpaceX, each one of which I would say touched on different segments of the space economy. There's the space technology for national security applications, space technology for civil, and then for commercial application, which so long as I could learn from, again, the teams of extraordinary engineers in each of these places to faithfully represent what the capability meant and identify new customer groups who could benefit from that capability as long as it was in line with the rules and the norms and the regulations that exist, which is, of course, something that I had not only inherited but shaped in my role as a government expert. That could actually drive credibility from the industrial standpoint, because oftentimes in space industry, you can be really excited about wanting to sell or deliver a solution, especially to a global community or a global customer that's willing to foot the bill. But guess what? There are regulatory frameworks in place for a reason. And understanding what they are, understanding how they have evolved over time for that particular piece of technology and then seeing, well, where is there an aperture for growth? Like, how can we actually have a successful outcome with all of these factors is probably the like tiny, tiny niche where my career makes sense. <laughs> there's, a, there's a word that, that you've mentioned a lot, and I've, I've written about that and how I think it's, it's been, I think it was a strategy that backfired on the on the environmentalist side is growth is an undeniable reality of life everything grows a cell grows a tree grows you can, and and the idea of stopping growth is not realistic and not only not realistic but it will not bring people together because because it needs to grow and moving forward I think we have to move beyond this idea that we have to kind of go back into a point in past where everything was perfect and we have to stop growth. 
when in reality, we need to grow, but we need to grow in a more mindful way and understanding that it's not growth at the expense of everything else, but growth where we have more values and continue and actually, you know, I was listening to something the other day where, in fact, we have to figure out how to consume more energy, but in a more mindful way, not less energy, because if we go back less energy, there's a lot more people are going to be affected. We have to create more, but have it more available to people and in a more, again, mindful way to the earth. I mean, it's it's that's something that obviously that 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 resonates with you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, people, you can galvanize people around growth. It's hard to galvanize people around stop, right? I mean, that's that's absolutely true. You just want to make sure that whether it's growing, you know, growing the bottom line, growing your revenue stream, growing your profit margin on top of that revenue stream, growing a segment of the industrial economy, growing a jobs program growing a skilled workforce in a particular nation, or let's say even in a particular college town here in the United States, you if you actually talk about a growth story that requires investment, that requires resources at the end of the day, that will have an impact on the terrestrial environment and economy, space is a tremendous growth vector, right? It always has been. But what's interesting is it takes a longer time to actually quote unquote, unlock the benefits of that growth journey, both from an economic standpoint and a technological standpoint. And, and this is what's really unique to space, we may even be investing in some of those technologies and we don't know what we're going to do with them, right? Like I said, I mean, people are developing technologies in the AI world and you're not really thinking about, well, how is this actually going to be applied? What's the best form of application? And then what are some of the more nefarious forms of application? So to galvanize around a growth story in the segment of the economy space has always been a great way to do that. Um, and yet, I think one area where more people want to be part of the growth story is really tapping into the fact that even to grow the space economy, you still need people who are not engineers. You really do. You need people who can think through norms and laws and regulation and governance. You need people who are creative enough to imagine what non-scientific experience is going to be like in orbit. You need people who want to make music in space and you need sound engineers who are going to think through, well, how do we actually broadcast a concert from space? Because I promise you that will actually benefit humanity, right? But the thought process that's required for that is a growth story. It does require the utilization of a lot of natural resources, both here on Earth and in orbit. And it has the potential to obviously make historical milestones happen. So, yeah, absolutely. We should all want to be part of that part of that growth story, as long as we're doing it in a way that's, as I said, responsible and doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, it's just the fact that you and I were having this conversation about space. I'm a wilderness explorer. You know, you're a diplomat. Space used to be more of a, you know, went from government, I mean, defense and engineer focused and really kind of the mathematic background. And now it's opening up and really kind of focusing on elevating and diversifying and taking the human experience. It's really about taking the human experience 
where it's not just about math. Math actually takes a second. It's more in the background now. Now we're, we want, how, how are we going to take what we have on earth with us and make it, you know, livable? Because obviously no one wants to live into, it's like no one wants to go camping in, all the time, you know, in, in the little shack just at the, at the mercy of the elements. At one point you want to have a nice little cabin in the house and all this. So, and it's going to be all these different personalities, these different assets that are coming to the table and want to elevate the, the kind of the, the human experience up in space. See that I want to be mindful of, of your time. And usually I start with three words that capture the essence of space. And then I end with three words. What are your three words of wisdom? You've, you've obviously lived in a lot of different circles. You have a lot of knowledge. And for anyone, whether they're starting or they're in the middle of their career or they want to look for something fresh, what would what would be your three words of wisdom? Uh, well, I mean, maybe they're a little bit obvious, but they're what come to mind. The first one is learn um, that that it, again, it's obvious, but nobody, not a single member of the entire human race, no matter your net worth, no matter how much equity you have in a particular company, no matter how much power you have, nobody knows everything. And so every opportunity is an opportunity to learn from someone else, no matter how old or young or rich or poor or powerful or not powerful they may be. So learn, learn is the first one. The second one is service. Um, if, you, if you are working in any domain, it needs to be in the service of something other than yourself. Otherwise, you're not approaching it with, as I mentioned, the humility that I think we all need to continue to approach our space exploration, which is what you and I share in common, but really any domain. You need to actually do so in service of some some greater good, some value set, some mission that is not yours and yours only. So learning service. Um, and the last word is silence. I can't tell you how often I mean, I'm an introvert, which surprises a lot of people, but I can't tell you how often I'm in meetings and people are talking and they're not just being silent and listening to what the other person has to say to truly understand someone else's perspective and gain the benefit of the diversity of humankind. You just need to be quiet. So <laughs> those are the three words of wisdom that I have to share on this Friday. <laughs> You know the uh, often when I when I did my presentations about my years of doing uh, solo wilderness expeditions, one of the questions that people often ask me is that how did I deal with the solitude with silence? Because it was one of the hardest things for them to imagine, like the, this emptiness and where they constantly feel like they have to fill in and and to, uh, put over. But for me, you need to have this place for the magic to come in. There's there's something, it's like if you're constantly trying to be ahead, you're not going to allow the, that space for something else to come. Whether it's someone else, whether it's a it's a it's a thought. But you know, Albert and Einstein often said it's like he he has his best ideas while walking. But you need to create these spaces where you open yourself rather than constantly pushing out, you know, pushing out. So yes, absolutely. So silence, learning, and the service. Love, love those. 
Sita, it was a wonderful way to start my day. Thank you so very much for coming on the Future Space. And I know that we're going to be seeing each other um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, later this year uh, or somewhere as we as we travel around the globe and, and uh, continue the, the work that we're doing. So again, thank you so very much. Thank you, Daniel. It's been an honor to talk to you. I'm inspired by the work that you do. My kids, as you know, are inspired by the work that you do. Um, I'm imagining you got the chills when you saw that video unearthed by National Geographic of the endurance of Shackleton's ship at the bottom of the sea. The same way that I did, it actually moved me to tears. And I imagine that's an experience that you have shaped for a lot of folks um, in the work that you've done historically. So thanks for your contribution in that respect. And I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. Thank you very much. Bye, Sita.